welcome everybody to Shaping Vaping, our weekly conversation into the latest in vaping policy. Our guests this week are Mark Gunther, a nationally renowned and widely published journalist who has written about vaping policy for the Chronicle of Philanthropy, and Clive Bates, a longtime tobacco harm reduction veteran who does heroic work debunking activist propaganda on vaping. (laughs) So thank you both for joining our conversation today. Uh, You're welcome. Happy to be here, Amanda. Absolutely. Hi, Hi, Clive. Yeah, happy to have you. I've been very excited for this space all last week, so I'm I'm really looking forward to it. Uh, But before we begin, we wanted to let our listeners know that you can submit questions to our guests today by responding to the tweet we're featuring now in the space, and we'll try to get to them if time permits. So I wanted to uh, get started first up with the court battles taking place as we speak. There are still a number of cases making their way through the federal courts to challenge the FDA's PMTA denial orders and review process. Unfortunately, late last week, we found out that the Supreme Court denied Breeze Smoke's motion to stay their denial order, meaning that the full review of Breeze Smoke's MDO will now proceed in the circuit court but the company will be subjected to FDA enforcement if it continues selling the denied products during court review. Clive, you recently submitted an amicus brief to the 11th Circuit on behalf of BD Vapor, which received a stay from the FDA on its marketing denial order while the FDA reviews its application. Um, I read that amicus brief over the weekend, and it was absolutely stellar. Um, Can you walk us through your central arguments in that brief? Yeah, uh, I mean, we... Let me just be clear what we're doing with these amicus briefs. We, we've, um, myself, David Sweener, and David Abrams, uh, so David Sweener from University of Ottawa, David Abrams from New York University, um, put in three amicus briefs into three cases, uh, Triton, uh, Biddy Vapor, and My Vape Order, um, which are all proceeding through different circuits. So I think that's... Uh, the, the, the 5th, the 11th, and the 9th, I think, or 7th. Anyway, um, we're not particularly taking sides with the companies um, or, you know, basically arguing that they should be given an MDO uh, or, or they should be given, uh, a, a, you know, a marketing order. Um, we're not looking at the strengths of their cases that they put to FDA. What we're looking at in these amicus briefs is the way FDA's decision-making is actually playing out in, in practice. And the, the reasoning that it has, uh, it, it is used to justify denying uh, thousands of uh, PMTA applications. And we've hit on, you know, basically four or five points that I think are pretty devastating. First of all, the way the FDA is carrying on its approach to handling these orders actually looks more like a rule. Uh, it's saying if you don't uh, if you don't do the following things, if you don't have all these um, uh, RCTs or cohort tests, um, then you can't prove uh, that you, your products are appropriate for protection of public health. And that has the effect of wiping out almost everybody in the marketplace. And it, it works almost like a de facto flavor ban. But if the FDA had wanted to do a de facto or wanted to do a a de jure, an actual flavor ban, it would have to have gone through uh, quite an elaborate rulemaking procedure uh, under uh, Section 907 of the Act. And it would have had to look out for uh, 
it would have to have justified this. It, FDA, would have had to have made an appropriate for public health justification. So, for example, it would have been obliged to consider uh, unintended consequences. And we, we saw from Abby Friedman's brilliant work in um, you know, San Francisco that when there was a flavor ban there, smoking went up. Now, that's not something that FDA can ignore. Another argument is that, um, you know, you, you look at these flavor bans, you talk about the youth vaping epidemic, but aspects of it are actually beneficial. Uh, so FDA would have to look at the extent to which um, vaping is a diversion from smoking. And you never see anything of this in its language, uh, uh, you know, in the, in the language it uses in these um, marketing denial orders. So FDA just ignores that and even rules out even thinking about whether vaping is actually beneficial to a certain subset of youth. And then, of course, you've got the question of, well, what's the impact on this like the third big point? What's the impact on adults? Now, we're not trying to show what the impact is here, but we're just trying to show that FDA doesn't have a way of weighting this properly. So if you like, if you're if you're FDA trying to work out what the respective harms or benefits are of flavored vaping products, you have to have some kind of exchange rate between the harms done uh, to a smoker who doesn't, an adult smoker who doesn't quit, compared to someone who never would have used nicotine in the first place taking up vapor. And our argument is that those things are completely different, a completely different order of magnitude. The risks faced by an adult smoker uh, who might stop smoking uh, or not are really very large. The risk faced by a youthful vapor who may be just part of a fad, may only do it for a couple of years, um, and in any case it isn't particularly harmful, are very low indeed. But FDA's done nothing to clarify that kind of exchange rate. And a couple of more points, I'll very briefly and I'll shut up. Um, our, one of our sort of central points here is that FDA isn't actually testing whether uh, companies have products that are appropriate for protect, pr protection of public health. It's basically imposing a size filter. And, you know, unless you have uh, a product line with sufficiently large revenue that it can bear the burden of FDA's testing requirements and evidence gathering and all this sort of stuff. It doesn't matter how appropriate for the protection of public health is. It's off the market. So, I mean, I think it's quite an important point. There's a gigantic size filter being applied here, which essentially leaves only uh, the big tobacco companies and big corporates with big fat balance sheets and lots of stuff who uh, have any chance of competing in this market. And then one final thing is we're saying and I would be very careful to any vape, uh, vape company, um, FDA saying, oh, uh, you know, you just need RCTs and cohort studies. Uh, and then, you know, then, you know, then you can make this case. That is an extremely onerous and difficult thing to do uh, and for reasons that we've set out in our um, uh, amicus brief and probably wouldn't tell you anything much about the value of flavors in the vaping market. So our idea is to throw these arguments into the court and say, look, you know, you've got to take 
even if you're going to make a judgment on narrow legal procedural terms, here's some reassurance that you're actually doing the right thing anyway. Um, and it's designed as a counterpoint to the quite ridiculous amicus brief put forward by the, um, you know, the health, the campaign for tobacco free kids health coalition, which makes a lot of spurious arguments about vaping and flavors. So it's designed to address some of that as well. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, thank you. That was an excellent summation of what's in the brief. And we've got a link to it featured in the Twitter space right now. I would highly recommend uh, everyone go read that. Uh, you all lay out an excellent case, uh, not only for the science, for the legal precedent in the Tobacco Control Act as well, and go through a lot of really great data uh, just offering the court a wealth of information on the problems here. And it was interesting, Clive, um, in preparing for the space over the weekend, uh, I was watching many of your videos on YouTube where you've made comments on this in the past, uh, you know, some as far back as, you know, 2016, when you were predicting uh, the very things that we're living through today in the aftermath of all of these MDOs, particularly uh, what I've experienced a lot firsthand in, in our work with some of the smaller manufacturers within AVM was that, you know, size barrier to entry, one of those last points you touched on. It's It's been really a painful thing for, for us that have been yeah. involved in helping smokers transition for the last, you know, 10 years or more to now be shut out of this process simply, you know, by the onerous burden that the FDA has put here. So, you know, for, on behalf of all of the small businesses, we really appreciate um, the, the briefs that you've been putting in and the points that you've been making well thanks yeah it's glad to do it we're, we're we're very keen to see this sector in particular the small vaping companies and vape shops thrive here i mean my view is the market should in the end look a bit like the beer market you know you have a few giant players nothing wrong with that they're they're everywhere but why not have a long tail of smaller players like you get with the micro breweries and craft breweries and so on. That's possible. Um, it's possible to have a regulatory regime that allows for that. It's done in the area of beer. So why can't it be done in the area of vaping? It's much less harmful than alcohol anyway. I, I would agree on all points. Um, Mark, I wanted to turn to you for a second. What do you think is driving the FDA's thought process here? <laughs> is it that all of the staff in the Center for Tobacco Products uh, have a strict adherence to this precautionary principle on vaping? Or do you think there's something more sinister at play, like their reliance on tobacco user fees or the influence of uh, well-funded activist groups? So, Amanda, I, I'm relatively new, certainly compared to Clive, to this space. And I have to thank Clive publicly because he has been one of my favorite teachers as I've tried to learn about vaping. Um, I resist uh, attributing motives in a situation like this. But if I had to, I don't think I would um, believe that it has to do with tobacco tax revenues. That case has also been... Yeah. Uh, put forward on a state-by-state -state level where you have Michigan, for example, very dependent on tobacco tax revenues and trying to enact a vaping ban. Um, to me, I think it speaks more fundamentally just to the caution of government bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we've seen this, and, and also the challenge that, that government has in thinking about trade-offs We've seen this in the COVID area, which uh, has unfolded at the same time as sort of vaping has been making big news. And 
Um, you know, I see it very personally. I have grandkids who are yanked in and out of the local schools here in Montgomery County, Maryland, where I live, and all the focus is on the potential danger, and it seems to be a very small danger posed by COVID to an elementary school child, very little attention being paid to the learning loss, the psychological issues, let alone the parents who are being driven totally crazy by having their kids yanked in and out of school. And so I do think it's a tendency of big bureaucracies to err on the side of caution. And my assumption, even in a debate as polarized and heated as this one is, that most people, and and I'm, I'm prepared to be proved wrong about this, but most people on both sides of this debate are acting out of good intentions. Fair enough. I think, um, you know, certainly we have seen that where tobacco revenue is is not necessarily the driver of, of certain decisions. And I do think that there is an attempt here to um, sort of backtrack on a genie that's already been let out of the bottle, right? You know, we've had smokers using vaping products in this country for over a decade now, and the government stepping in uh, so late to the game here trying to find some sensible uh, well, non-sensible in this case way to regulate a very large uh, marketplace. And I, I think it's probably a little too late to put that genie back in the bottle, but we see FDA certainly making some kind of attempt here. Um, in their reply to SCOTUS uh, in the Breeze smoke case, uh, Breeze pointed out that FDA has yet to respond to the Fifth Circuit opinion in the Triton case, which cataloged several errors in denial orders and calling the FDA's review process a switcheroo. Um, we're featuring a tweet on that now. Um, Clive, could you explain to our listeners the FDA switcheroo review process and what are the and follow-up question? Uh, what are the chances that this case or others will eventually make their way to the Supreme Court on appeal? Um. Oh. Um. Well. Um, so I think um, the switcheroo is basically uh, relates to an earlier case and I'm afraid I can't actually remember which one it is but it's uh, outside the tobacco field and that's when that term was coined but basically it's uh, FDA changing the rules during the game is what this gets to Um, and bringing in a new evidence hurdle and a new way of assessing the appropriate for the protection of public health test, which is at the the heart of its uh, um, de- deliberation and authorization regime, um, and only kind of announcing this at the point when it started rejecting thousands of applications, which is that um, you know if you don't have Uh, a randomized control trial and a a cohort study or the equivalent, then um, uh, you haven't, and, sorry, and this is the the sort of extra nuance in it, um, this has to uh, compare a flavored product, which of course all products are flavored, um, against a product that is flavored with a tobacco flavor uh, and show that there has to be a measurable difference in the smoking cessation efficacy for adults. Not not that the products are effective for smoking cessation with adults, but that a flavoured product has to be significantly more effective than a tobacco-flavoured product, which is a 
a test no one saw coming. Uh, a few companies may happen to have data that allow them to make that comparison, but that will be pure luck uh, rather than uh, design because no one saw that test coming. So the switcheroo is switching from what FDA said in its guidance to what it said in its marketing denial orders um, and you know this new kind of bizarro test of evidence that they've inserted. Mark, did you have anything that you wanted to add on to Clive's comments about the switcheroo requirement? Um, I haven't paid as close attention to the legal developments, but I do have a question for you, Amanda, if you don't mind. Um, I'm going to try and write something in the next week or 10 days about what the impact of this has all been, and I haven't uh, seen much on that elsewhere. Are there... Is there any enforcement going on of any kind around these FDA um, denials or, or companies, to the best of your knowledge, simply voluntarily either shutting down or withdrawing their products from the market? Or is everyone waiting to see what the courts ultimately decide? Well, that's a great question. As you can imagine, there's been a bit of a mixed bag of, of reactions on the industry side. As far as what we've seen from FDA in regards to enforcement, uh, we, we have seen more enforcement activity um, than is customary for FDA. In the wake of the MDOs, uh, there was a flurry of FDA inspections that went on with all of the manufacturers who were denied. Um, and of course, you know, um, when you've got that many companies being inspected, there was a, a quite a range of, of outcomes and reactions to that that we saw. Um, you saw a lot of companies um, that, you know, still were manufacturing some of those products that are now dealing with warning letters. Uh, we saw FDA, you know, really badgering companies that had unregistered and stopped manufacturing products as a result of the denial. Some FDA inspectors even going so far as demanding access to home offices of some of these manufacturers. Uh, but there definitely has been uh, quite a lot of inspection activity going on and quite a lot of warning activity going on. And uh, as you can imagine, quite a few disputes between manufacturers and FDA have arisen based on some of FDA's inspection activities, especially towards um, manufacturers that are no longer producing the MDO products, you know, still facing these warning letters from FDA that they are in fact manufacturing illegally when, when it's quite clear that they're not. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what goes on in the response process to some of these warning letters. But yeah, we'd be happy to uh, speak with you and plug you in with some, some companies to uh, help with that article if you'd like. Yeah, I mean, that would be great. The, the, the real point here, obviously, is what effect all this is having on the ground. If there are legal briefs flying around, and that's necessary and ultimately very important, that's one thing. But to me, the question is, is it harder for Americans who want to vape to obtain the products they want today? Um, you know, you have the shipping prohibitions that I assume are being enforced again i don't know i haven't gone on the internet and tried to order any vapes but uh that would be in my mind a real story if you found people or both individual vapors unable to get the products they want and or businesses closing down and jobs being lost 
Yeah, absolutely. Happy to dialogue about that um, after the space here, but a wide range of reactions, lots going on with that. I want to move to a related topic, uh, FDA staffing changes. Uh, Of course, Mm. tomorrow, all eyes will be on the Senate's Health, Education, Labor and Pensions Committee as they consider Robert Califf's nomination to head the FDA. But another major announcement was made last week that isn't getting nearly enough attention, Mm. Uh, namely Mitch Seller, the head of the agency's Center for Tobacco Products, announced he will be leaving the agency in April of next year which could be right around the time that FDA rules on some of the remaining PMTAs. And I've got a question for both of you on that, uh, either one of you. Um, Do you think Zeller's departure will be good for the Center for Tobacco Products, or do you see the new head doubling down on their anti-vaping stance? Oh. (laughs) Well, let me me try that. Um, First of all, I... I know Mitch Zeller reasonably well, actually. And let me just say this. Uh, he is a, a kind of decent man. Uh, and he certainly, and I certainly agree with Mark's comment earlier. There's, there's no sort of dark forces at work here, sort of cynically trying to hold on to money or something. Um, and I, you know, I think he has sort of pedantically tried to follow the, the law. But in doing that, he's ended up, uh, taking the most risk-averse possible position, but paradoxically ended up creating a, 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 a sort of chaotic regulatory environment that isn't really fit for purpose for some of the reasons that I um, uh, that I set out earlier. So it is possible to intend to do the right thing and end up making uh, a bit of a mess of everything, which is how I would see the situation now. Um, right. Will, will things get better? Um, I don't think it, I don't think we're in a position to say just now. Um, I think that will be more determined by the fallout of these cases and the challenge to FDA's authority um, uh, to just issue these marketing denial orders to thousands and thousands of companies without ever properly looking at their case or really understanding what they're doing or just kicking them out because they're too small, basically. Now, if that if that comes back from the courts in a fairly assertive way in favor of the petitioners, the vape companies, then I think that will cause a great deal of soul-searching and heartache uh, in FDA. And remember, I do think most of them are trying to do the right thing, even though they are not. They're doing the wrong thing. Okay? It will also affect uh, what type of person is appointed, uh, and it will affect the attitude of the incoming commissioner, if it is Caliph, um, or anyone for that matter, if the agency or Centre for Tobacco Products has been humbled in the courts, if it emerges from the courts sort of triumphant, you know, with the, the, the sort of vaping industry in ruins around its feet, you know, like Russell Crowe in Gladiator or something, um, sort of swaggering around the arena as if it's won everything, then we'll get something probably... Um, you know, even worse uh, or even more destructive than, um, than, than we've seen so far. So I, that's how I think it will play out. Um, it'd be interesting to see if there's any softening in 
Congress over this as uh, very interesting, the reversal of the tax uh, measure, whether things are finally getting through to the Democrat side, that actually they may actually be at war with the poor here and, you know, essentially doing something that's causing more harm than good and is actually making public health worse. If that is actually catching on with the Democrats and they're starting to listen to some of the influential people talking to them, like Ken, Professor Ken Warner, um, Mike Pesco, uh, Cliff Douglas, some of these characters, Abby Friedman, who are, you know, piling in now and being quite active in this debate, these sort of academics who now understand this from an economic perspective, then, you know, again, maybe we'll see um, a more... Uh, open attitude to the concept of tobacco harm reduction in public health and a slightly more accommodating approach from from FDA. But that's that's I think those things will determine who the successor is and the attitude of the incoming commissioner uh, rather than us being able to know that now. Yeah, I think I would agree with you on on a lot of your points, Clive. Over the years, I think we've seen Zeller in in some of his public statements and some of his written statements certainly express an understanding of the continuum of risk and understanding of harm reduction. And so I don't I you know, I think for a long time he was definitely working to take CTP in a direction that was cognizant of of harm reduction and the continuum of risk. And so, you know, uh, seeing his departure here, especially in the middle of, of such a crucial time at CTP is, is a little concerning, uh, more than a little concerning on, on who is well, going to step in and fill that role next. Well, just think about this, Amanda. If you're, if you're the head of a, you know, a, a, a department within FDA, like uh, Zella is, and then somebody in the outside world puts up $160 million to influence your regulatory decisions, and that's basically what Bloomberg Philanthropies have done. They put $160 million into arguing for banning flavors, either banning them outright in state legislation or banning them um, de facto through the PMTA process, then that's a lot of pressure. There's a lot of groups, uh, a lot of groups' attention has been bought for that. They've got everybody in the game, um, you know, American Heart, American Cancer, American Lung, Vital Strategies, Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids, Parents Against Vaping. They've, they've got this massive alliance of people who are all taking, you know, sucking at the teat of this gigantic um, funding source. And they're all directing their pressure via the media and via Congress onto that agency to make the decisions that they want. So that cannot be an easy position to be in. They're also litigious. You've seen them go to court and actually reverse FDA policy that was actually more accommodating to vaping they were going to fda was going to give uh, companies a bit more time to adjust that wasn't good enough for these guys so they come in with a legal action uh, that big legal coalition they've got change everything so you know they're litigious you know they're in the media you know they're in congress and you know they're breathing down your neck trying to influence the decisions and you know they've got you know 160 million dollars to play with so you know i don't want to be sympathetic with michelle because this is a total mess but I can see, seeing the world from his point of view, you can see the kind of pressure that these guys will have been under to chuck out all these flavoured products. 
Absolutely. That's a great segue into our next topics. I know you've both written extensively about anti-vaping activist campaigns and the wealthy philanthropists philanthropists like Michael Bloomberg who fund them. Uh, and that brings us to Mark's uh, excellent piece he penned, extremely in-depth and insightful for the Chronicle of Philanthropy. In that piece, you wrote, quote, Bloomberg Philanthropies used its money and influence to curb vaping, to be sure. But others who have worked for decades to reduce deaths from smoking say the ongoing campaign against e-cigarettes is more misguided, built on unsound science, and likely to do more harm than good. And I'm struck that so few journalists have scrutinized Bloomberg's global activities. Usually, you would expect mega billionaires lavishing this much money on public policy to become a lightning rod. But the press mostly seems to give him a pass. Mark, what do you think explains that? I think it's changing, but I think there has historically been very little critical coverage of any kind of philanthropy, at least in the U.S. press. Um, Generally speaking, donors have been met with expressions of gratitude for giving away their money. Uh, Philanthropy has not been seen as a way to exercise power, which would then lead to more scrutiny. Um, Bloomberg also, you know, in his case, he's influential in the media world. He has a television network. He has what has now become America's leading business magazine, I would presume he has generally good relationships with the New York Times after his years as mayor of New York. And um, as a result, I think he has skated along with this vaping campaign with very um, few tough questions asked, unfortunately. That's probably true of a lot of big philanthropy in the U.S., although I do see a trend where reporting is now um, being much more skeptically directed at a particularly billionaire philanthropy. Right, because, you know, at some point, you know, you've got to look at the outcome measures of this philanthropy, right? And we've already seen this in in places like San Francisco, where, you know, there's a very noble goal that that these crusaders, you know, are carrying the flag for. But but I I wonder, do they often sit back and really look at the outcome measures of, of what they've accomplished and what the collateral damage has been? And, and that's one of the pieces that one of the things I really like about your piece, Mark, is is you take the other uh, viewpoint into consideration. Right. Um, sometimes when we hear tobacco free kids testifying on things, it seems as if there's only one public health perspective on vaping. And your piece does a really great job of, of, of questioning, you know, is there divided opinion on this? What is what are the outcomes we're actually seeing? And so I wonder so, if you can walk yeah, us through that a bit. Sure. Um So the help that I got from people like Clive and Ken Warner and Cliff Douglas and David Abrams and many others in the public health community was uh, hugely helpful in terms of writing the piece and raising questions about the, the science on the other side. I don't think the Bloomberg people, or this was actually Campaign for Tobacco Free Kids specifically, help their cause because when I asked them if they could point me to a reputable scientist who was a critic of vaping, um, this was in January of this year, so recently, uh, they sent me to Stan Glantz and it didn't take a ton of research 
to realize that if that was the best scientists they could put forward, maybe the science on their side needed a little more um, scrutiny. Uh, in terms of the beginning of your question about outcomes, the problem there is that big foundations are the least accountable, powerful institutions in America. I mean, local, state governments, Congress, at least imperfectly, you can have democratic control over them. You know, if someone takes a vote or a position you don't like, theoretically, you can work to get rid of that person. The same is true in the corporate world, which is where I came out of and used to write about. You know, if, if Apple puts out a crappy product, people don't buy it. There is some accountability in the executive suite. Um, there is no one who can or, or it, you know, there's no one who can hold the big foundations accountable. They're endowed in some cases with billions of dollars. Uh, internally, they aren't, they don't tend to be organizations that uh, encourage internal dissent, um, the joke goes that when you become president of a foundation, all of a sudden your jokes get funnier and you're a lot handsomer <laughs> and no one is really ready to, to, to question you. And I think that that's really, in a way, that's the shock of this all. I believe some of the scientists whose names we've mentioned have tried to get a meeting with Mike Bloomberg just to say, can, can you hear us out? And at least um, to the best of my knowledge, um, even that has not happened. So it's a fundamental problem of accountability and philanthropy in no way, you know, specific to this issue of vaping. Yeah, excellent yeah. points. Yeah, uh, Clive, did you have a follow-up to that? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, Mike, Mike Bloomberg has this little sort of slogan, which, uh, which he's very pleased with, which is, in God we trust, everyone else bring data. <laughs> okay, and he's got this kind of like, yeah, bring, I'm the data guy around here. But if you do bring data, they're not interested. <laughs> they're not interested at all. Um, and, you know, Mark's right. There's been efforts to have meetings with him um, to discuss the data. You know, but one of the, you, you mentioned it, Amanda. One of the clear one of the clear cases is San Francisco. Okay, now. It's it's one measurement, you know. It's a it's a preliminary thing, you know. Who knows what will happen in the end? But un, unambiguously, um, they put in a flavor ban before, you know, comparing before and after. Adolescent, so this is not adults. This is teenage smoking went up. Now, you've just you your Bloomberg philanthropies, and you've put 160 million dollars into banning flavors. And the one bit of experimental empirical evidence you have about the effect of that policy is that it increases youth smoking. What do you do? You know, what, what, what are the internal processes that should be triggered within an entity, a foundation like Bloomberg Philanthropies that says, oh, my God, we may have got this totally wrong. We may be spending one hundred and sixty million dollars on increasing youth smoking because of our campaign against youth vaping um, and then by the way there's a whole ton of data now that's available that says oh these problem these products are economic substitutes so by the way that's exactly what you'd expect if you if you if you get a rise in vaping you'd ex expect to see a decline in smoking and vice versa so we have had the wrong economic 
conceptual policy model from the start, yet we've put in $160 million. Will he take a meeting on that to discuss it? Of course he won't. Will Bloomberg Philanthropies pause their $160 million campaign and think again and stop winding up Congress into a frenzy with a load of false arguments? No, they won't. And this, to me, gets to the heart of Mark's critique here that he set out in in, in his um, article, I think it was in March. You know, are these guys doing more harm than good? And if they are, how do they know? And if they do know, or if they should know, what do they do about it? And the answer is nothing. They just carry on. Uh, you know, and Bloomberg's funding stuff all over the world, calling for outright prohibition of uh, vaping products and heated tobacco products in every low and medium income country. And that low and medium income countries, by the way, covers 80 percent of the world's smokers. For them, it's an outright prohibition is the preferred policy. Obviously, unintended consequences flow from that. Black markets, increases in smoking, individuals harmed, corrupt law enforcement and all the rest of it that comes with prohibitions. Have they paused to think about that? No, they haven't. So this is what what gets the heart of Marx's critique. They're totally unaccountable, but they don't have the mechanisms internally to respond to evidence and data as it comes at them, uh, or arguments as it, as they come at them, they just carry on regardless. So, if I might, Amanda, I, I think the the there's a related problem, which is the word nonprofit in the U.S. has a kind of aura around it that that mm. people interpret to mean good guy, yeah. and it seems to me the the if there is a place where there is some accountability. It is in the, the nonprofit sector in the public arena. And so by that, I mean campaign for tobacco free kids, you know, highly visible organization. I'm told Matt Myers has great relationships with many veterans on Capitol Hill and in Congress. The, the way to get these issues out into the public, I would think, and this is, I'm sort of stepping outside my role as a reporter here, which makes me mildly uncomfortable, but it would be to, you know, bring the evidence to people who are willing to hear it in the political arena and ask them in some way to hold the tax-exempt nonprofits. The, the other thing that people do need to remember is that all of us are supporting the tobacco-free uh, campaign for tobacco-free kids uh, and Bloomberg Foundation, because all of that money is flowing um, untaxed, uh, and therefore other people are making up those tax revenues. But uh, I, I'm winding around in a long-winded way of saying, ultimately, I think this is going to be a political issue. It is a political issue, and the response from people who are care about the science is probably some combination of putting all those respected names in the public health arena to work uh, 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 as one tactic and then trying to mobilize the vapors and the vape shop owners and the manufacturers to talk to their congressional representatives and make their voices heard as another and somehow you know, try through the political process to hold the nonprofits and foundations accountable. I don't, I don't see any other way it's going to happen. 
I, I would certainly see a lot of wisdom in, in that remark. And, and certainly that is a long-term project that, that many of us here and, and many of us in the audience uh, spend a large amount of our time devoted to doing. And it's been, it's been great recently to see so many more public health voices really coming out and getting very vocal about this. We've got a great question coming in from the audience from Jim McDonald, who asked, in 2019, Bloomberg donated $160 million to be allocated by tobacco-free kids to promote bans of flavored vaping products over the next two years. Do we know if he is planning to refill this anti-vaping slush fund soon? Uh, we don't, but all my communications with Bloomberg Philanthropies, which is mostly now through their public relations people, tells me that uh, this is not something they're about to drop. They're, they're still behind this. And that's, again, this has to do a little bit with Mike Bloomberg himself. Uh, he's fundamentally a very paternalistic guy. That, that, that was his record as mayor of New York. Um, like most billionaires, he not only thinks he knows best what's for him, but he knows best what's for everybody. And uh, I, I would be very surprised if they uh, at any point back off and say, gee, we, we thought about it and sorry. I want to turn now to a recent piece that, uh, Clive, you wrote where you categorized two distinct camps in tobacco control policy, the oh. transformers and the abolitionist. Um, you said that the abolitionist, which are groups like Campaign for Tobacco-Free Kids and the Truth Initiative, are fighting for a, quote, nicotine-free society. Uh, why is this approach so flawed? You know, what a coincidence. I was just about to send a, a, a tweet reply to Son of Liberty Radio, who asked a very good question on this, um, saying I agree totally with his perspective and also um, tagging in that article, which I which I uh, which I will do once I've finished answering. Um, I, I do have a look at his tweet. If you if you're if you're around, it's under one of the uh, adverts for, for 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 this session. So I mean, my my feeling is that the path ahead very much depends on where you think you're heading. Um, and there's a lot of people in public health who basically their goal is a nicotine free society. They may not have started off saying that they may have said, oh, we're a public health and we, you know, we don't, you know, we don't like all the cancer and heart disease and everything. Or we're a non-smokers rights group and we don't like having smoke blown in our faces or anything. But ultimately, these people are now emerging. I mean, you, you used to be able to say, you, you know, you were against smoking, tobacco, nicotine. Uh, you could be against the tobacco industry. You could be against passive smoking. You could be, a, a, you know, uh, concerned about kids. All of those things came together in op all of those motivations came together in opposition to cigarette smoking, basically. But when you have lower risk, I mean, much lower risk alternatives, you have to break those um, different motivations apart because you have different pathways you could follow. If you're against nicotine, you can't really follow the harm reduction route. But if you're against cancer, uh, you could get a, you could go a long way by changing the way nicotine is consumed. So the article I wrote was Transformers versus Abolitionists, which is designed I mean, it's a simplification, obviously, but it's designed 
to capture two underlying mindsets. One in which you're ultimately aiming for the nicotine-free society and everything is gone and, uh, you know, we all do virtuous things instead uh, of, of, of using uh, nicotine. Um, the transformers say, aha, there's a market here. People, whether we like it or not, and, you know, I've never used, uh, never used nicotine or never been in it and, you know, been in public health forever, uh, whether we like it or not, people are going to use nicotine just as they use alcohol, just as they use uh, other recreational drugs, just as they use caffeine. OK, um, it's popular for some people. It helps them get through life. It helps them regulate anxieties and stress and so on. Um, you, may, you may not like it, but other people do. Once you accept that there's going to be a nicotine in there's going to be a nicotine market and people are going to use it and you accept that it would be foolish to try and prohibit it for all the all the reasons we know from the war on drugs and prohibitions generally then you're into the question of well what does that industry look like that supplies it and what do the products look like and i think we now i think the answer to that question is now emerging uh, yes there will be a long term nicotine market and the reason is a lot of people use it and the main reason that they stop using it is because of harm take away the harm, the reasons to stop using it become much weaker. Um, I think uh, we've now got the product portfolio. We'll, we'll see vaping products, heated tobacco products, oral nicotine products, um, smokeless tobacco products. They're all much closer to each other in risk than they are as a category uh, distant from um, smoking, if you see what I mean. They're, they're, the differences between them are relatively trivial compared to the distance between all of them and smoking so we have uh, a range of products that would allow nicotine use with not zero risk but risk that you would say was within the normal risk appetite we have in society so the question then is well what's the commercial model for providing it is that tobacco industry is it like i said you know like the beer market where you have a few you know uh uh, you know, giant beer brewing companies and then a long, long tail of, you know, regional breweries, uh, statewide breweries, and then right down to in, uh, in the premises breweries, you know, microbrews and so on. Um, and that's, that's the market shape that I would like to get to in the, in the, in the vaping industry. But, you, but that will be created by the regulatory environment and the regulatory hurdles that are imposed on participants in that mine market, those burdens should be much lower if the product is much less dangerous. Uh, and that's what we, you know, we refer to as risk proportionate regulation. Uh, and it's a concept that exists for regulators across the piece. It's not just a, a you know, a tobacco or consumption thing. You always make the re regulation less burdensome when the when the product or the activity is less risky. So that's how I see it playing out. And ultimately, I think we're in a battle between the people who want a transformation of the nicotine market from what it is now to how it could be in the future, largely based on non-combustible products, and the abolitionists who are ultimately aiming for a nicotine-free society, but I'm convinced will fail for the same reason that prohibitions and um, you know attempts to uh, you know, stop any kind of recreational drug use have always failed. I mean, nicotine's been with us now for many thousand years. It's been with us at very large scale in the 20th century. I don't think it's just going to go away just like that. The 
challenge is going to change to how it's supplied. I'll leave it at that. And I'll send this tweet as well. <laughs> Excellent. Uh, Mark, did you have any thoughts on that topic before we move on? Uh, two brief ones. The best book or one of the best books I read this year was called Last Call by a former colleague of mine, Dan Okrent. It was about prohibition. If you haven't read it, it will tell you why the prohibitionists are not going to be successful. I hope, though, it doesn't take 14 years of prohibition for us to learn that this time around. I also find it really strange that at a time when more and more people across the political spectrum are acknowledging that our long-running long drug war in the U.S. has been a failure, that people don't connect that failure to this desire to create a war against vaping. You know, I, I couldn't agree with you more. That's one of the things that's so frustrating about this whole situation in the United States is to stand back and just realize how many times we have watched this experiment fail uh, on other issues and how many more times do we have to repeat the same failures of prohibition before we figure out that, you know, that doesn't work. I mean, regardless of whether it's alcohol, regardless of whether it's drug policy, regardless of whether it's nicotine, you know, just telling people not to do something and outlawing it, you know, is not, is, is, it doesn't really work when you take human behavior and human decision-making into account. And so there's got to be a better way, but it, it never ceases to amaze me how many times we're willing to, to repeat the same failed policies. Um, but I wanted to turn now to the part of the shaping vaping conversation that we call media lapdogs. And this is where we look back at recent news coverage and offer our critiques of the facts and the narratives. I wanted to start off to talk about the American Heart Association retracted study coverage. Uh, I wanted to get both of your insights on a recent episode in which the Daily Ma Mail, Philly Voice, and a number of other local news outlets covered a study from the American Heart Association touting an increased risk of stroke for vapors. And as you know, that study received immediate criticism for hyping a false uh, result, namely that smokers who switched to vaping had less risk of stroke. This led American Heart to retract the study, but of course, no news outlets updated their story. And so I've got a question for both of you. How did this happen? Is the AHA and their researchers just corrupt and willing to fudge study results to promote the narrative? Is the media actively colluding with this network of anti-vaping researchers to scare parents who watch the nightly news? Uh, what's your take? Uh, I'll quickly say no active collusion. Um, scare stories generally are good for ratings. That might be the incentive there. And it is really hard, generally speaking, once some falsehood gets out into the world to pull it back. Uh, vaping is hardly the worst example of that that we've seen um, in the U.S. in the last couple of years. Definitely. Yeah. And yeah. oh, go ahead, Clive. Um, no, I mean, there's uh, you know, there's that saying that uh, you know, a, a liar's run halfway around the world before the truth has put its pants on, um, and you know, that, that's that's what happens with these things. You can't put the the genie in the uh, the genie in a bottle. Um, I mean, that that study. I mean, it, it's the it's the most annoying. These conferences are ridiculously irresponsible. So this is a paper that hadn't been peer-reviewed. 
I mean, not that that would make that much difference, but it, it was so flawed, it might not have even survived peer review um, in, a, in, a, in a journal even like Tobacco Control. It was so bad. Um, it gets absolutely eviscerated by anybody who knows anything about the subject and the methods involved. It selectively publishes a weird finding. E-cigarette users face a 15% higher risk of stroke at a younger age than traditional smokers. It's like, well, why, why did you decide that was the thing you were going to look for in advance, or did that just drop randomly out of the, the study? Um, it buried the bigger finding, which is, which is that e-cig users are at lower risk of stroke, and it, it didn't properly discuss where that uh, number had come from, the headline number, but it didn't stop them rushing it into a press release so it wasn't just it was picked up as a conference, a conference abstract, not a paper. It put, put it into a press release and put it out and pumped it up. And then, and then well, they, they, they claim that there was some technical reason it didn't make it in time for the, for, for the conference. Um, you know, something to do with time zones or something. Um, but it's clearly been withdrawn and removed and hopefully karma heads have prevailed and realized that this is just an absolutely ridiculous thing to put out there on the basis of one paragraph. All the critics said, well, you know, we can't even tell really what's wrong with it. We can we can list the following five things that are probably wrong with it. But because we've only got one paragraph, a conference abstract to go on, we can't ab be absolutely certain. And it hasn't had peer review or anything. So it's just some completely irresponsible behavior by American Heart Association trying to get published publicity for its wretched conference so it can, you know, basically, you know, be more in the public eye using a cheap headline from a spurious finding in an unpublished, unpeer-reviewed study. I mean, what kind of integrity is involved in that? So that's what we're dealing with. Um, Hopefully, in the end, journalists will wise up to this. I mean, they don't, but hopefully they will. And maybe having been burnt by this one, the male's journalist on this, who we got to go back to American Heart Association, will say, well, yeah, I won't be fooled again. I won't be, I won't be doing that, this sort of thing again. But, you know, it's just too tempting. You get the headline, you publish it, you know, you get a lot of clicks on your, uh, you know, on your Internet uh, news page and everyone's happy. Uh, just accept the the public and the truth. Agreed, and that's such a great turn of phrase uh, about uh, what what did you say? A lie makes it halfway around the world before the truth puts us. I, I was on mute, but that got a very very big laugh from me. Uh, so I'll have to remember that one. Um, it's, 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 a, it's a theme we talk about week after week on the show here. Um, you know, these studies that are just terrible science, terrible methods, they get retracted. And, you know, thank heavens for, for real researchers that put the time into scientifically debunking some of these things and, you know, putting that effort into to getting the truth out there. But it, it is frustrating that the media chases the big headline. And then once that's out there, there's never any kind of follow up when these things are proven to be false. Um, the, the, to kind of close up here, I want to skip ahead and talk about the coverage uh, that we saw around the Denver flavor ban. Um, and as a lot of our listeners probably know, I, I lead one of our state-based advocacy organizations in Colorado, and we've been 
fighting this Denver flavor ban for um, years. Uh, the most recent iteration we've been fighting uh, for most of this year. Um, and we saw it pass last Monday. The full Denver City Council passed the, De the Denver flavor ban. Thankfully, uh, the mayor went on to veto the flavor ban, uh, which was a very positive turn of events. We saw the mayor in Denver uh, really take a look at how this would impact um, low socioeconomic members of the Denver community, how it would impact Denver small businesses. And he did issue the only the second veto he's issued in his entire tenure as mayor over a decade. So we saw the truth prevail there in the end. But but in the interim, we saw a lot of bad coverage in the media over the Denver flavor ban. Um, we saw the Denver Post frame it as a fight between uh, council members and parents concerned about teen vaping uh, versus um, business owners and big tobacco. Um, we saw the decline in youth vaping in, in the entire country and in Colorado specifically minimized and dismissed by the media. And, you know, it, it leads to my question on, why so continuously, especially on a thing like flavor bans, where we have so much evidence from the last couple of years that they just don't work? Um, you know, Mark, as as a member of uh, the journalism community, <laughs> why do you see this kind of one sided coverage prevailing? I, you know, it's hard for me to know except to say and, and I don't this is not an excuse in any way, shape or form. But, you know, most local newspapers are shadows of what they were when I was working at a local newspaper up until the mid nineties. I mean, they are grossly understaffed. There's no expertise around health or science, which would be relevant in this case. Um, you know, I, I don't really have a better explanation for, for it than that. Um, and I, I, in one sense, I would say the groups that I have been most disappointed in and, the short time I've spent on this issue, it's really only been a little, it's been a year now, are the sort of um, ones with a wonderful halo around it, the big national uh, associations, the Heart Association, the Lung Association, the Cancer Association, um, the way in which they have lent their, to me, you know, great deal of prestige and strong brands, strong brands, to this campaign has really been a, a surprise and a disappointment. And if you have those folks, plus the CDC, um, you know, plus the FDA warning about these products, uh, it, it's, it's hard for a reporter who doesn't have much time to really seek out the other side. Absolutely. Well, we are going to continue covering that topic here on The Space every week. You know, hopefully uh, we'll start to see journalists become a little better educated on both sides of this topic and their coverage. But um, as we close out, I want to uh, ask Mark and Clive where people follow you to receive updates about all the work you're doing on these topics. Um, I appreciate that, Amanda, because uh, I am on Twitter, obviously, but the best place, and I, I am going to devote more of my time to to this topic of, of tobacco control broadly, the best place to follow me is by signing up at Medium to get my stories um, under a, a sort of uh, little magazine. It's really just a way to collect my writing called The Great Vape Debate. But just look for me on Medium, and that's where I'll be writing most of my work. 
Fantastic. And we'll make sure to uh, throw up a tweet linking people to um, where they can find you on Medium. Clive, what about you? Where can people receive updates on your work? Um, <laughs> well, I, I am trying to just reshape my website at the moment, which is clivebates.com, uh, which I'm hoping to make uh, a lot better. Basically, um, I'm going to do more blogs that are shorter. I tend to write extremely long blogs, which I think are a bit of a turn off and not very often. So I'm, I'm planning to do shorter blogs more often. Uh, I'm on Clive underscore Bates uh, on on Twitter. Of course, you can follow me on Twitter and I post almost anything I do gets posted somehow on there. But what I've concluded is that I spend too much too much time producing content and not enough time sharing it and doing stuff with it. So I'm aiming to change that in 2022. So I might be bothering you a lot more in 2022 than I have been um, previously. Um, uh, and maybe reaching out a bit more. I mean, I just want it, something I have to say. I am so disappointed in the Democrats and vaping. I mean, the, it should be a no-brainer, totally you know, straightforward issue for them. People who often are in disadvantaged situations, uh, generally from poorer groups of society or various sort of problems, here's something that comes along, saves them money, improves their health, changes their, you know, their whole sort of family dynamic with tobacco and smoking, and they're dead set against it. I mean, honestly, talk about losing touch with the people that should be in your base and, you know, that's today's Democrats, I'm afraid. And I hope, I really hope that they rethink this totally and start to see it as something that is a great strategy for dealing with health disparities, health inequalities, uh, and essentially the grotesque gradients that are in health between the wealthy and the poor uh, and, you know, people with disadvantage, they really, really do have to change this. So that's going to be something I'm going to be trying for in, in 2022 in terms of work that I'm, I'm going to do uh, in the U.S. Well, that's, fan <laughs> that's fantastic. And, uh, you know, over at American Vapor Manufacturers Association, you know, we were very happy to see some of the more moderate members of the Democratic Party really step out and, you know, put their foot down against this vaping tax yeah. and take that out of the Senate version of the bill. And, you know, uh, you know, echoing what you said, you know, in 2022, that's one of the big things that that we're really focused on is, you know, bringing more of a bipartisan support to this harm reduction fight. Absolutely. Uh, but Definitely. Thank you both I mean, for... it's very encouraging that, that the, those moves on the tax from the Democrats, to give them credit, those that did it, that's a very encouraging shift there. That could be a game changer uh, and, and something to build on in 2022. So, yeah. Absolutely. Well, I can't thank you both enough for joining us today. And, uh, you know, welcome back anytime, anytime you have uh, a new piece of work you want to spread awareness on or just come on and, and talk, talk with us about policy, bad media coverage, we would be happy to have you back. So uh, thank you to all of our listeners. We will be back soon bringing you another great episode of Shaping Vaping. I hope everyone has a great week and uh, keep a lookout on the AVM Twitter account. We'll continue to bring you the latest news until we talk to you next week. Thank you very much, Amanda. Thanks, Amanda. Yeah, thank it's you. been great to talk. Really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you both.